Please join me in Luke chapter 10. Luke 10, we will be looking this morning at verses 25 through 37. Title of our sermon is, Who is My Neighbor? Our key words for worshipers in training are Samaritan, neighbor, and compassion. When I was in college, I went to a George Winston concert in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Uh, George Winston is a piano player. He's most well known for um, playing the music of Vince Guaraldi, who wrote all the music for the Peanuts cartoons, Linus and Lucy and Snoopy and all that. Anyway, I was at a concert listening to George play when all of the sudden, a few rows behind me, someone stood up in the middle of him playing and shouted, Is there a doctor in the house? My husband is dying. Wow, that gets your attention, right? It's a quiet theater and all of you hear, all you hear is a piano playing. Then all of a sudden someone makes this loud claim that not only is something wrong, but the person is actually dying. So George keeps on playing like nothing's going on and someone sitting in the row behind me actually said, well, hurry up and get him out of here. You're interrupting the concert which developed in me a sudden desire to punch him in the nose. I didn't. (laughs) He obviously lacked all sense of compassion for his fellow human being. About that time, someone else came from across the other side of the theater and administered medical attention, helped the man get out of the theater. I assumed he must have had a heart attack or something of that nature. A very scary situation for anyone, right? And so I sat there wishing there was something that I could do, but I, I, can't, I can't even pass college algebra at the time, so I knew there was no chance I was ever going to medical school. But I was so thankful there was a doctor there who was able to help. The American Medical Association has a code of medical ethics that says that a physician should respond to the best of their ability in cases of emergency where first aid treatment is essential. So the doctor who responded that night in the theater was fulfilling what the AMA calls his ethical responsibility. He was caring for a man who was in desperate need with the ability that he possessed to offer help to him. Now, sadly, because we live in such a litigious society, many medical professionals are very reluctant to provide any kind of medical services whatsoever without written signed consent from the person they are helping, which makes sense if you're on the other side of a lawsuit. Who wants to get sued and lose everything that they've had because they're trying to help someone in a medical emergency? But thankfully, in all 50 states... There are what are called Good Samaritan laws that mostly apply to medical professionals, but also to you and I if we're doing something like the Heimlich Maneuver or CPR if we've been certified and trained in those things. So if someone performs a medical act and is either unsuccessful or they prolong the life of someone who was trying to die or they cause further injury even if they were doing the right thing, if they're sued as a result of that, the Good Samaritan laws are in place to help protect them from litigation. 
And what I find so interesting about Good Samaritan laws is the very name and principle of those laws themselves. They're lifted straight out of the scriptures. It comes directly out of our passage this morning, Luke 10, 25 through 37. It's interesting, isn't it, that people in our culture today inherently understand that working for the advantage and the benefit of others is inherently a good thing. So good that it should be protected and encouraged instead of hindered. And yet there are also those who look at situations like this and say, like the man who is sitting behind me, get him out of here. The show must go on. And what's, what's really striking to me in that situation I was witness to is very similar in many ways to the parable of the Good Samaritan. There are those in Jesus' parable that we will look at this morning who see a man in need and say, it's none of my concern. While there are others who say, I have an ethical responsibility, regardless of whatever else is going on. And it plays out all across the world, day by day, making this parable amazingly relevant to us today, especially as Christians who are bound to live according to all that God has commanded to bring him glory. So let's begin first by looking at what Jesus encounters that brings about the parable that we're all very familiar with of the Good Samaritan, beginning in verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this. And you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Now, given the language of Luke's writing here and the proximity of this parable to the previous section that we looked at last week, it seems fair to assume that this situation took place with the lawyer immediately following Jesus' prayer to the Father that we looked at before as he's teaching among the disciples with regard to the blessing of salvation and having eyes to see and ears to hear the great truth of the kingdom of God. But regardless of whether or not this is the situation, what is clear now is that Luke is showing us an example related to the text we saw last week. Remember, Jesus prayed to the Father saying, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding. So now Luke here is giving us a very clear example of who the wise and understanding truly are. Jesus meets with the lawyer on what he assumes to be his own turf, the law of God. Jesus will show the lawyer that he doesn't actually understand the very law he claims to be an expert of. So we will see the parable of the Good Samaritan is nothing if not provocative. It's a reverse trap. The lawyer sought to trap Jesus into saying something derogatory about the law of God, But in turn, Jesus shows him 
that he and the Jewish leaders are the ones who really do not keep the law at all. He asks Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, surely he already knew what Jesus's answer to that question would be. Jesus had responded to the same question previously, and he had most likely expressed it on other occasions in his teaching. Jesus combined what we call the Shema of Deuteronomy 6 with Leviticus 19.18, when he had voiced his response in a different situation, the very same way that the lawyer was now responding to Jesus. So where did the lawyer get his response? Well, most likely he got it from Jesus himself. So this was no innocent questioner who wanted to learn from the great teacher. And Jesus knew it right away. So he set the trap and the young lawyer responded. What is written in the law? How do you read it? The lawyer provided his response. And Jesus made him to look foolish. He was made to answer his own question. And then Jesus' response was, you've got it. Now go and do it. In other words, is that what you're teaching, Mr. Lawyer? Well, good for you. Now practice what you teach. How embarrassing. Beat at his own game. Made to look like a fool. So what does he do? Well, the same thing a lot of us would do. I know I would. He sought to save face. Luke writes in verse 29 that he tried to justify himself by saying, Yeah, well, who is my neighbor? He should have sat down before then, right? You imagine there's maybe people sitting around him like pulling on his tunic. Just just give it up. Just sit down. You're embarrassed for him. But his response itself was deeply telling, wasn't it? Perhaps we might give the lawyer some sense of the benefit of the doubt and assume he was genuinely curious. What does it mean that I love my neighbor as myself? Is that just my Jewish brother? Is that only those who have good religious character? We can't possibly love everyone. Where can we draw the line? What about our enemies? What about those who have oppressed us as a people? And as wise and as learned as he was as a Jewish lawyer, it is clear that the truth about the kingdom of God was, as Jesus said in our passage last week, it was hid from his eyes. Jesus begins his parable in verse 30. Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now the road from Jericho, uh, excuse me, from Jerusalem to Jericho was steep. It was treacherous. It was very dangerous for one's safety. So dangerous, in fact, many people had nicknamed it the bloody way. Jerusalem sits about 3,000 feet above sea level, while Jericho, about 17 miles away, is 1,000 feet below the sea level of the Mediterranean. So as you can imagine, walking down 4,000 feet of descent on a steep, rocky road between various towns was itself a very difficult task. But add to that the fact that there are numerous crags and caves along the way, very dangerous places for thieves to hide in. They would strike, they would get what they wanted, and they would depart with no one being able to catch them. 
It's one of the most dangerous places an individual could be. Imagine being in, in Manhattan and getting turned around and finding yourself in the middle of the night tri- traveling down a really dark alley in a strange part of town. Now imagine walking down that alley in the dark for 17 miles. Something's going to happen. That's the Jericho Road. And Jesus tells us the man fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Verse 31, now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Now, Jesus doesn't waste any time at all getting to his point. He's pointing out religious hypocrisy. He begins with a priest. The priest in Jesus' parable was most likely returning from Jerusalem after performing some religious duty. He was in Jerusalem at the temple doing his task, and he was going back to either Jericho or some other place along the way. He saw the man on the side of the road, but he realizes very quickly that if in fact he were dead, to touch him would have left him ceremonially unclean. So to ensure that he remained legally clean, Jesus said he passed by on the other side. So not only would he not touch the man, he wouldn't even walk near him. Likewise, Jesus tells a Levite when he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side. Now, the Levites were not as high-ranking as the priests, and yet they were still of the religious establishment. They were regarded very highly. They were treated with great respect. They were the ones responsible for the worship and the practices within the temple. They served right alongside the priests who actually carried out the duties. So Jesus gives us the sense here that the Levite was walking. He came upon the man in the road. He looked at him, and he walked to the other side of the road, and then he kept on going. Again, most likely the very same reasoning as the priest. The best case scenario is that he wanted to remain ceremonially clean. Now, before we start hating the priest and the Levite here, think about how you yourself might justify it. Being ceremonially unclean for seven days would have kept them from performing the task within the temple that they were required to do as a priest and as a Levite on behalf of the people of God. It was very easy for them to reason. We have a higher and more important calling than this. Someone else will take care of this man. We have to maintain our cleanliness and we have a more important calling. It's for the good of more people than just this one. Or perhaps even more realistic in our culture. I don't have time for this. I have to pick up my kids at 3. I have a doctor's appointment at 3.30. One kid has soccer practice at 4.30. The other has to go to a dance recital tonight at 7. And I have to get dinner ready first. Sound familiar? Now, all of us assume if we were to see something like this on the Jericho Road, surely we would stop. Surely we would do something, right? 
April 2010 in Jamaica, New York City, New York, a woman was attacked at 5.40 a.m. on 144th Street and 88th Road. Surveillance videos on the sides of buildings show a homeless man who ran to the aid of the woman, pulled the attacker off of her so that she could flee. While he, his name was Hugo Alfredo Tail Yaks, was stabbed in the chest several times, and then after trying to chase the stabber, collapsed to his death and left in the middle of a sidewalk. Now, on the video, which you can watch online, you can see people either just walking right by Hugo, some pausing for a moment to stare, and then moving on their way. There's one really chilling moment in the video where a man walks out of a nearby building. He pulls out his cell phone. He snaps a picture of Hugo, and then he leaves the scene. Several times there were pairs of people who would come and they would stop. They would talk to one another and then they would leave. And then later another man stops and he leans over and he he shakes Hugo's body. After lifting up his head to reveal a pool of blood underneath him, he too just stood up and walked away. He laid there for an hour and 20 minutes. And firefighters finally arrived to discover that 31-year-old Hugo was dead. But they didn't arrive because someone called 911. Nobody made them aware of the incident. They were on their way to another non-life-threatening incident when they happened upon his body on the sidewalk. And looking back at police records, it was confirmed that not a single 911 call was made about the heroic homeless man who was left for dead. Even though a woman's life was spared, 25 people walked by, stopped, stared, took pictures, and even discovered him to be dead. Not a word was said about it. There are other stories like it. There's another video of a 71-year-old man who was hit by a car in Connecticut in 2008. He was left in the middle of the road for over an hour as cars drove around him. People stood on the sidewalk and watched. Again, not a single call to 911. And you know what? Every one of those people probably had no difficulty whatsoever justifying in their minds why they weren't going to get involved. Sociologists call it the bystander effect. At best, people reason that someone else is taking care of it so they can just go on with their day. At worst, they don't care. It's none of their business. Am I my brother's keeper? So the human heart is just as Jesus describes in these two men, isn't it? We don't have to go back 2,000 years for plenty of examples. To preserve their legal cleanliness, they, the priest and the Levite, heartlessly transgressed the second greatest commandment, to love their neighbor as themselves. They passed on the clear teaching of Scripture, to have mercy on even strangers in need. It's an ironic story. The priest and the Levite, the officers of God's people who were given the responsibility of serving those in need, along with all of their other duties, the priests were the public health officials and the Levites were distributors of alms to the poor. 
But at this point in Jesus' parable, the lawyer and all of the others who were sitting around were still expecting something other than what they were about to get. They expected the common threefold rhythm of any Semitic story to reveal that now in Israel, Israelite layman was about to come by and help the man. Many people were very unhappy with the clergy in their day, the priests and the Levites, so they expected Jesus to say that an average good guy Jewish man came along and did the right thing. It would slap down the establishment and perhaps most of them would have applauded that. But that is not what they got in the next part of Jesus' story. Look at verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and then he set him on and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. A Samaritan? You remember back in Luke chapter 9 how the disciples asked Jesus about the Samaritans? They wanted to call down fire from heaven to consume the Samaritans. The Jews hated the Samaritans. In fact, all of the training and all of the experience of the Samaritan should have led him not to just go to the other side of the road like the priest and the Levite, and not just to step over him, but to step on him. And if he wasn't dead, to make sure that whatever he could do to make sure he was dead would be done very soon. They were bitter enemies. It all started about 400 years early over the issue of racial purity. While the Jews had maintained their purity during the Babylonian captivity, the Samaritans were those who intermarried among the Assyrian invaders. So in the eyes of the Jews, the Samaritans were compromisers. They were very unclean. The Samaritans even built a rival temple, defiled the Jewish temple and later had, had theirs destroyed by the Jews in the days of the Maccabeans. So over that 400-year period of time, the, the hatred between them had, had been so ingrained in their thoughts since they were children. Having anything to do with one another was unspeakable. Most often the Jews went all the way around the Samaritan lands whenever they had to travel anywhere, even though it was well out of their way. Some of the early writings of the rabbis says, Let no man eat of the bread of the Samaritans, for he who eats their bread is as he who eats the flesh of swine's. The ultimate insult was at the end of one of the formal Jewish prayers in the temple. They're praying this in the Jewish temple. And do not remember the Samaritans in the resurrection. When the Jews were furious with Jesus in John chapter 8, they called him a Samaritan as an insult. They couldn't think of any worse name. Additionally, many many Jews had been murdered by Samaritans. 
There was constant fighting. So Jesus is introducing a good Samaritan in his parable. It's unspeakable. It's unreal. Those two words to the Jews were not synonymous. Good and Samaritan. This man in Jesus' parable wasn't a villain at all. He was, in fact, a hero. He was filled with pity. Jesus said he was filled with compassion. So instead of passing by, instead of stepping over, instead of stepping on this Jewish man, the Samaritan applied ancient first aid. He put the man on the donkey while he humbly walked beside it all the way to an inn. And then he got there. He gave the innkeeper two silver coins, which was about two days of wages. And he promised to pay the entirety of the bill when he returned. This was no work of an enemy. This is the work of a friend. The Samaritan didn't only give of his time. He didn't simply forge a relationship with someone who would otherwise be an enemy. He was his advocate. He provided medical care. He provided transportation. He gave a hefty financial gift. He even follows up with a visit. I can only imagine what's going on in the mind and the heart of the lawyer who initially asked Jesus this question. This is a man who not only knows the Mosaic law, but he was a man who displayed it in what's called a phylacrity on his forehead. That's a small uh, black calfskin box that had a strap on it. And they strap it to the forehead. You see Jews today in Israel still wearing those, some in New York City even. Inside of the phylacrity... There's a piece of parchment upon which was written the words of the Shema from Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So this man would have easily considered himself a law keeper according to that, according to the Shema. Ah, but that pesky entire second table of the law, loving his neighbor as himself. You see, Jesus' parable served to make it painfully clear. The lawyer and all who agreed with him fell far short of what they thought themselves to be so good at, keeping God's law. So while the lawyer stands in shame and embarrassment, Jesus hits him with yet another blow. Look at verse 36. Jesus asks the lawyer, which of these three do you think provided, uh, proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go. And do likewise. Ouch. You go and be like the Samaritan. 
Notice the lawyer couldn't even bring himself to say the Samaritan. He said he who proved to be a neighbor was the one who showed him mercy. How hard it must have been to speak those words. It wasn't the priest. It wasn't the Levite. And by implication, it wasn't the lawyer. It was the much hated Samaritan. The Samaritan was the keeper of the law. The Samaritan loved his neighbor as himself. The Samaritan fulfilled the first greatest commandment to love the Lord our God with all of his heart, mind, and soul and strength. And he did it by fulfilling the second great commandment. And then Jesus' final stab at the self-righteous heart of the lawyer comes at the end. You go and do likewise. This is the only answer to the lawyer's question. But it was impossible to fulfill unless he would truly love God with all that he is and showing it to be true by actually loving his neighbor. Now, this parable, more than most, should be incredibly challenging to us. We must not forget the original question that Jesus was answering that the lawyer had asked. It wasn't about the neighbor, remember? What was the first question? Look back. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Remember, Jesus was asked the same question by the rich young ruler in Mark chapter 10. And Jesus' conclusion, go, sell everything you have and give it to the poor. How are we justified? How are we saved as believers in Christ? By grace, through faith apart from works of the law. It's a complete work of God by the power of the Holy Spirit to regenerate the hearts of his enemy. But what happens in the lives of those who have been redeemed by God? We love our neighbors. Remember James tells us in the book of James, faith without works is dead. You see, it appears as though Jesus sees care for the poor as part of the, ascent, of the essence of being a Christian. In Matthew twenty-five thirty-one, Jesus is judging people on the basis of their ministry to the hungry, to the naked, to the homeless, to the sick, and to the imprisoned. It is all evidence of one's true love for God because one can only love their neighbor who has first been loved by God. And so it is that showing mercy to others is central to the very definition of what it means to be a Christian. In the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus is explaining the characteristics of those who are in the kingdom of God, he says, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Those who are truly children of God are the objects of his mercy and they will themselves be merciful and so will receive mercy in the end. In other words, showing mercy to our neighbors is evidence of having received mercy from God. Have you been shown mercy by God? Now, of course, we can all assume that we will be shown mercy on the day of judgment. 
Most people do. But one sure sign is how we love our neighbor. Uh, Perhaps you're sitting here this morning and are fully aware of your lack of mercy for others. It may very clearly be evidence that you've not received the mercy of God and you sit here condemned already. Have you repented of your sin and placed your faith in Jesus Christ? If not, there is no way that you're able to truly love your neighbor. You may do what seems to be good things. You may perform what you assume to be good deeds. Everyone around you might tell you you're a good person. But anything done that is not done from a heart's desire to love, honor, and glorify God, first and foremost, is not true mercy. It is not love for one's neighbor. And friend, my great hope and desire for you is that you not face God in the end as a judge who gives you what you rightly deserve and then everlasting condemnation. I pray that you turn to Jesus as Savior, as Advocate, as Mediator, as Sacrifice, as your best friend, that you may be pardoned from the wrath of God and have a right standing before him because of Jesus' righteousness being transferred to your account. There are some here this morning who would claim to know Jesus, who claim to love God, but they may not. So please understand what Jesus presents to us very clearly. Our relationship with fellow human beings either validates or invalidates our claims to know and love God. Do you truly love your neighbor? When Jesus shows us the indifferent priest and Levite, he unmasks the many false limits that people put on the command to love your neighbor. In the Samaritan himself, Jesus shows us that the neighbor to whom we must render aid is anyone at all in need, even an enemy. Perhaps you feel trapped by the parable's logic. You might ask, but isn't it unrealistic? Aren't the needs of the world's poor too overwhelming? Is Jesus saying that we must all assume a life of voluntary poverty and move in with the downtrodden? Are we ready to make no distinctions between the deserving and the undeserving poor? Well, I certainly don't have time to venture out to answer all of those questions, and they may be important. But I want to challenge this with this. If our response to this parable, to the the call from God to show mercy to our neighbor, if our response is to immediately raise all sorts of objections and questions, there's a problem. We need to check our hearts. Love for people or the lack of it reveals the quality and effectiveness of our supposed faith that we hold. And from a biblical perspective, our love for people is even more revealing because it actually indicates the authenticity and health of our relationship with God. Love for God produces authentic love for other people. Love for God is difficult to see. But love for people is subject to relational verification. 
It's significant that the Apostle Paul, in writing to the Galatians, quotes Leviticus 19.18 as shorthand for keeping the entire law. He says this in chapter 5 and verse 14. The entire law is summed up in a single command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Does this mean we can earn our salvation by being a good neighbor? No. Why? Because we can only love our neighbor as ourselves if we love God with all that is in us and then watch his work in our hearts and through our lives. Now, doing mercy ministry is one of the most difficult bodies of water to navigate in the Christian life, undoubtedly. But we have to remember, there are far fewer exceptions than we like to think. Is our neighbor in need? How are we showing them mercy? This is not a call to perfection. Only Jesus loved and showed mercy perfectly. Only Jesus was able to fulfill the two greatest commandments. But our paradigm for the Christian life is what Jesus presents in the Samaritan who risked his safety, who destroyed his schedule, who became dirty and bloody through personal involvement with a person of another race and social class, one who was supposed to be his enemy. So let's think about this today. Are we as Christians obeying this command personally? Love your neighbor as yourself. Are we as a church obeying this command corporately? Let's pray. Father, your word is truth. And our great desire is to live according to the truth. And so we pray, Father, that you would pierce us, would change us, would transform us. That you would make us to be radical lovers of God who, as a result, are radical lovers of our neighbors. Help us to be honest with ourselves. Help us to be honest as a church. Are we following your command personally? Are we following your command corporately? Father, you've shown us great mercy. May it be said of us that we show great mercy. In Jesus' name, amen.